Welcome back to the Governance Podcast at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Irina Schneider and I'm your host. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Matula Kocielu and Luke Riley, who are postdoctoral research associates here at King's. Matula and Luke are both computer scientists with expertise in game theory and artificial intelligence. They're currently working on the Volt project, which aims to explore applications of distributed ledger technologies, including blockchain, in domains involving voting and collective decision making. Matula and Luke, it's a pleasure to have you here. Hello. Hello. So I want to talk about blockchain and voting. It's a very complicated technology. So I want to start off with asking you, what is blockchain? So uh, blockchain, I would say that it's a new type of technology that keeps uh, a secure and permanent uh, record of data. And uh, where all this comes from, uh, it started all with uh, Bitcoin, the first uh, digital cryptocurrency. So tell us more about Bitcoin. How does it work? Okay, so Bitcoin is a way to uh, transfer value between individuals uh, in a decentralized way without a centralized intermediary. Because normally, where if you want to digitally transfer value, you'd have to go onto your online bank account and then you'd have to send, uh, well, you have to enter someone's details and you'd send money to them, but it would go through the bank. Uh, so the banker in control of making sure that money goes to the other person. But with Bitcoin, there is no one else in the middle. It's direct from peer to peer. So in this peer to peer network, how do we know that the transactions are actually secure? Because uh, now, uh, instead of the banks, now um, another person can do the same job. But the difference is that uh, this person can be anyone of, uh, of the network. How do we know we can trust these people? Okay, so the way that they validate the transactions is according to um, the protocol of Bitcoin that when you join the network, you agree to use. Okay, and where does this protocol come from? Is it from some centralized authority? So all these uh, rules of the protocol, um, they came from a person that uh, is known as Shatoshi Nakamoto. So this person uh, published uh, a white paper on like, what he was describing, the um, uh, Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer payment system. And uh, for the first two or three years of, uh, after this uh, publication, uh, he or she disappeared. So apart from Satoshi Nakamoto, there is also a method in Bitcoin for anyone to propose changes to the protocol. So in that way, it wasn't just one person or many people acting as Satoshi Nakamoto who could change the, the Bitcoin protocol, but anyone who joins the network could, could do. So therefore, it is a decentralized system. So anyone can change the system. How is that secure? So actually, everyone can propose uh, changes for the system, and uh, and then uh, these changes are being voted on by the main participants of the network. So it makes the whole uh, system more democratic. Who are the main participants of the network? Okay, the main participants of the Bitcoin network are a group of people called the miners, and anyone can take the role of a, of a miner. And a miner validates transactions from one individual to another. So if I understand it correctly, 
you're describing a system where people are transacting, they're sending each other Bitcoin, and these transactions are validated by a group of individuals called miners. And I'm just curious, how does the transactional process work on the system? Okay, so um, there'll be a group of unconfirmed transactions somewhere um, that are sent around the network. And then these miners will take some transactions from this unconfirmed pool. Um, and they will look to put these, um, the valid ones, into a block. And a block will contain other things, other related metadata, and the um, valid transactions. And then the miner will try and solve a cryptographic puzzle to link this block to the previous one in the chain. Okay, so that sounds really complicated. Right now I'm imagining literally some blocks connected together by a chain and there's data inside each block. And the data are basically the transactions that you send. So you sending Bitcoin to somebody is a piece of data that gets locked inside a block. And then what happens with the encryption and, and how, what, what is the cryptographic puzzle that the miner is solving? So I, I think this is a good way to visualize it, like a, a chain of blocks. But what is exactly the chain? So imagine initially the chain is empty, right? And then as Luke mentioned, let's say that uh, a miner uh, confirms or validates the first block. So when, when the block is uh, validated, then it's being added in the chain. So then when the next miner has uh, already validated the second block, then uh, in order for the second block to be added in the chain, then you need first to solve this cryptographical puzzle. Um, when this puzzle is uh, solved, it uh, automatically gives you um, a link uh, that connects the, the second block to the first block. So then... Uh, so then when you add the second block in the chain, then you have, you know, the blockchain with two blocks. Then the third miner comes, sorry, not the third, a new miner comes with a, a, a third block and it does exactly the same process. So at the end you end up in a chain with blocks where in each block there is a data where data are uh, mostly yeah, transactions between peer to peer. And how, what role does the encryption actually play here? So does this mean that people can't access each other's transactions or are the transactions completely private? In, so in Bitcoin, all valid transactions are public knowledge. But you can have other uh, blockchains that um, are either anonymized or, let's say, encrypt data that are in these blocks. So it really depends what blockchain you're using. So why is encryption important? So the, the cryptographic link between blocks is important for two reasons. Firstly, it will help keep uh, the data in the same order for all the participants on the blockchain network. And secondly, it makes it significantly harder to go back into a previous block, change some data. Because if you went back into a previous block to change data, you would then have to change the cryptographic link to all future blocks. But what does it mean to actually change data on the platform? Like, you know, as a user of Bitcoin, why would I have peace of mind using this technology? And what is it trying to actually prevent? So an example is if I bought something online with Tesco, let's say I bought a TV, 
and I paid with Bitcoin, Tesco then does not want me to go back into a previous block where I paid them and change it so actually I didn't pay them. Uh, so that's what this cryptographic link is trying to prevent. Okay, so it makes the transactional information completely unchangeable and it makes it harder for people to cheat on their transactions because their data is encrypted? Is that correct? Yeah, because to, to go back and change uh, some blocks of a network, you usually have to have majority control or close to majority control of the whole network. So At the same time. Yeah, at the same time. So it's, this is a lot more secure than a centralized system, which might have one point of uh, vulnerability that hackers can attack. But now with a big blockchain network, you'll have to attack multiple points at the same time, which can be very difficult to do for a big blockchain network like Bitcoin. So you mentioned before that you need a majority of participants on the platform to uh, attack the system. Well, what if that actually happens? What if a bunch of them just gang up together and, and hack the system? So the main participants of the network are the people that mine the most, so the people that validate the most of the blocks. Uh, so um, these miners, they have no incentive to do something like that because um, it's like they attack their, their own system. So uh, these main miners, they get a reward, they get the majority of their reward in Bitcoin. So by attacking uh, with the system with any kind of manipulation, uh, you know, they, they, they risk um, the, the price of Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. Okay, so they lose out personally exactly. a yes. lot if they attack the system itself. Exactly. Okay. All right, so it seems like it's a very secure system, a lot more secure than current banking systems, for instance. Uh, so why are we not all using Bitcoin all of a sudden? Why is this uh, still kind of a sort of struggling technology? It's because of the technological maturity of the software associated with blockchain at the moment. Currently, you have to have quite a good technical knowledge to be able to use it so that for the majority of people they they can't really be bothered really or they, they, they don't understand it but it's becoming a bit more mainstream some more companies are trying to put more user-friendly software around the blockchain so maybe in the future it'll get more and more popular such as this December you know there's lots of people buying Bitcoin so maybe it's already started so here also I would like to add uh, one of, um, actually, I would say actually the main problem of uh, Bitcoin not being, you know, enlarged is like there is like scaling problems. So at currently uh, the more users uh, they go into the system, the slower the transactions uh, become. So there are many projects and companies at the moment that they are trying to, uh, to sort this scaling problem. And, uh, yeah, I think it will be necessary for something like that to happen before Bitcoin becomes the main uh, payment system. Yes. Mm. Uh, another point is um, how many people use the Internet in 1994? The Internet existed, but the facilitators, facilities around it were, like, very new or very raw. It took another few years, before, like, to, up to like, 1999 before it was, like, more mainstream. So that were possibly in the same time frame for blockchain. But is it a matter of the lack of maturity of the technology, or do people have legitimate concerns about it uh, other than what you might have mentioned? So uh, recently we've seen a 
drop in the stock price and Bitcoin, are people actually uh, worried that, that the technology could let them down in some way, shape, or form? Is is there are there any vulnerabilities in the encryption process or um, in, in anything else in the way that it works? Well, the, the price is always extremely volatile for cryptocurrency, and this. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that it's uh, quite new at the Mm. moment and it hasn't matured. For example, uh, I believe that there are many different types of investors. There are people that invest in Bitcoin because they want to just get money out of it. But there are also people that they invest in Bitcoin because they like this idea of the decentralized, worldly digital currency. So um, the fact that it goes up and down. So, okay, we've seen recently a a big drop in the price, but I see it as maybe cleaning. Uh, Mm. So maybe, yeah, the, the, the people that have remained are the people that they believe, I think, in the ideology that Bitcoin brings. And... Yeah, I mean, it also comes down to uh, liquidity of the market. It's more an economic thing. If there's if there's not that many people buying and selling proportional to the world population, then if someone sells a lot, the price can drop really quickly, mm-hmm. quite quickly. Exactly. Uh, and, and there were also many... Bad news. Do you think that Bitcoin is just an ideology, or is it the next great disruptive technology of our time? Because in a way, if you're actually taking away power from intermediaries like financial institutions, which have traditionally overseen and enforced our transactions, and at the same time you're decentralizing information among so many different people, it makes our lives a lot more difficult to hack, right? So um, I would say it's not all about the hacking and it's more difficult to hack, but um, I would say that uh, people have uh, lost their trust and their faith in uh, central bodies. So I think societies have uh, the need for something new, so something that you will be able to uh, connect or transact immediately with the other person without having to to trust someone in the middle. Let's talk a little bit more about how blockchain can be disruptive in other industries. So I wanted to discuss your project in particular at King's College London. So you're working on the Vault project and exploring the applications of blockchain in voting. And I'm curious how that works. So let's say I'm voting in an election and I cast my vote and it goes inside a block. What's the next step? Okay, so it depends on the architecture you're using. There might be different um, different properties that you want for your voting system. You might be happy for your vote to be public knowledge, which would be the case when you're voting as a shareholder. If you're voting in political election, you obviously you want it encrypted, which is also possible. So it's a bit too complex to go initially to nationwide elections. So our project is focusing on uh, shareholder voting and also um, online voting, but maybe for a political party leader. So uh, those two use cases. So small scale. Small scale, online voting, yeah. And how does it actually work? So you have the decentralized network of people validating the votes coming into the system, is that correct? So in this case, so um, there is another type of blockchain that is called permission 
So in a permission blockchain, the difference is that um, the people that validate the blocks, the people validate the data, are uh, is one group or one person. So you don't actually need a decentralized uh, network that everyone can can uh, take part in the validation process. So um, uh, it's not fully anonymous. So the participants of the network they're known in a permission blockchain. So one of the people we're working with is ERS, Electoral Reform Services. Uh, they will have a blockchain node and they will allow a few other people to be blockchain nodes that, that they know in real life. So in that way, it's permission. They're not going to let someone f from a random foreign country join the network and try and disrupt their elections. That's yeah. not going to happen. And it's similar for our other uh, partner in the project, which is Crowdcube. For shareholder voting, the nodes of the blockchain network will be the main shareholders, no one not associated with the company. Okay, interesting. So the government can still oversee the identification of everybody voting in a national election if it were to scale up to that level. Yes, you would, you would need a, a way to ID the people who are allowed to vote. Mm -hmm. So that could be one of the rules to make a valid transaction. You would have to have a pre-approved ID. And, and if you're doing national election, that would be, I guess, from the government. Traditionally, we use electronic or paper ballots to cast our votes in an election. Why is blockchain a better system for this? So I would say that uh, blockchain adds... Uh, an extra security and transparency in electronic voting. And uh, I believe that, in general, electronic voting um, in, would increase participation uh, in, in, uh, in voting and also will help people with disabilities, disabilities be a part of uh, a uh, voting process. And also, if there's other people who are not in the country and who can't go to a uh, polling booth, they, they could use the electronic blockchain-enabled voting system to cast their vote. I was wondering also about the implications for, uh, you know, scandals about foreign governments attempting to hack elections, and we're seeing this more and more. Is blockchain one of those things where people's votes can just basically never be subject to question that it's completely secure, it's counted for, and it can't be hacked. Is this a solution to this hacking question? Uh, well, it, hopefully it can be in the future, but uh, if it was already, then it would already be implemented. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the reasons why we're doing research on it yeah, and why we're focusing on smaller use cases. At the moment. But yeah. yeah, but if we solve these problems for smaller use cases, hopefully eventually we'll move towards... Um, having it in national elections. There's people that already run national elections online, like Estonia and Switzerland also do some smaller scale online elections. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll secure them more with blockchain. What's the experience of Estonia and Switzerland like? Are they basically just having completely secure elections and it's a good example to go by? Well, we had uh, recently uh, we had uh, a survey, a small research um, on uh, the current online um, voting systems. So I would say that um, yeah, almost uh, all of them they have security issues. Oh, they have security issues. Yes, but they they wouldn't say to other people they have security issues. But when independent academics have analysed them, 
they think, well, they think or they've shown that they have security issues. Mm-hmm. Even though there is a new one that is coming in Switzerland called CHVO that I don't think they've found security issues with yet, but it isn't active. Um, what kind of security issues are these? <laughs> so, do you give any examples? Mm, so, for example, okay, a voting process, um, it's actually a combination of many different processes. So, for example, it's the um, submitting your vote, uh, recording it, and um, keep them somewhere secure, and then counting uh, at the last part. So, security issues or attacks can be in any of these different processes. So, there are many different ways that they, you can change a vote by attacking a system online. Yes, so one example is uh, State of Alaska could accept votes from email, uh, but academics show that these PDF email votes can be intercepted and changed before they get to the uh, Alaskan online voting system. And you cannot even uh, understand that it has been changed. Yeah, and I, th- I think um, there was all other more technical issues found, because as far as I'm aware, the Estonian voting system was open source and someone looked through the code and they noticed if they received a lot of votes at the same time, they, it could either be taken down or some votes could be erased. I'd have to, I'm not 100% sure on that, but it's available in the associated paper. So does blockchain remove these vulnerabilities or you can hack into a blockchain vote just as easily? So given that uh, when you send your vote that this process is secure, uh, then the blockchain technology at least can promise that the, uh, that the, um, you, they can keep secure, uh, they can sh- store in a secure way your vote. So, for example, the transaction of um, me voting for, for you, it can stay secure, but then the, the process before, it's also an issue. Getting the vote onto the blockchain, yeah. So uh, if you ever hear about hacks for Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, these are not hacks for the blockchain associated to that cryptocurrency. They're hacks uh, for, shall we say, the website that allows you to get onto the blockchain. So it's like hacked before the, you, you go onto the blockchain. So as you can see, there, there are many different processes that we need to think about before you enter yeah, the blockchain. I guess we should also say it is possible that votes could be changed if some person controls the all of the blockchain network or a significant majority of the blockchain network. Mm. Uh, so those issues have to be fought through. But it's still more secure than just having one one centralised person control the online voting system. Okay, so basically we should switch all over to blockchain because the benefits still outweigh the costs of it. Switch all the online voting over to, over to blockchain, but we're not in a position now to say all paper ballots should be online blockchain voting systems. It's, it's, it's not ready yet for that switch to occur. So are you working on that process in the beginning where it's vulnerable to hacking to try to secure it? As the, the work with the ERS, Electoral Reform Services, is to allow their online system to have individual and universal verifiability. So an individual verifiability is that the user knows that when they cast a vote, that their vote has been recorded somewhere. And the universal verifiability is um, so that anyone can go and check the count is correct according to the votes that have been recorded. 
And hopefully, the way that they can do that eventually when our project is finished is not through the ERS system, uh, but directly. You, the user would correct, uh, connect directly to the blockchain itself. Because if you went through someone else's system to access the blockchain, you actually don't know if you're accessing the blockchain. You might be accessing someone's fake version of the blockchain, mm. shall we say. What can we achieve with a more secure electoral system? How can technology help us make democracy better? So that's a very good question, because uh, given that we have a secure online voting system, uh, I think it can open uh, many new ways of uh, creating uh, more engaging types of democracy. So, for example, um, there is uh, there is the direct or liquid democracy. So what are these types? So direct democracy is uh, the voting process that you can vote directly on a specific matter without um, uh, voting for a representative. And liquid democracy is you can actually delegate your vote to someone that you trust and then that person can vote on behalf of you as well. For example, you might have a friend that um, is more expert on a specific um, uh, matter uh, so then you can just delegate your vote to your friend and your vote, can vote on behalf of you. So the difference to representative democracy is you would you effectively delegate your vote to one person for five or four years or something like that. But in liquid democracy, you can delegate to different people for different topics and the temporarily delegations, you can take them back at any time and vote directly instead. Yeah, and you know you can you can uh, have many different forms of that. For example, if someone agrees to accept the uh, votes of other people, uh, you can uh, have as a rule that um, um, their vote will not be private and it will be open. You know, the the people that delegate your vote, the, their vote to this person, can actually see what this person votes for. It's all different rules that you could add to the system or take away to the system. Exactly. But it makes it more engaging for society to get them mm -hmm. more involved. More proportional also representation of uh, what the society wants. Yeah, okay. But how does blockchain actually improve our ability to do these things? Can't we do them all offline? Um, so, um, as we mentioned, that uh, the blockchain technology can keep a secure data, uh, a secure record of data. Uh, so um, imagine that you have like a liquid democracy model. So all these delegations of votes can be uh, uh, stored securely. So that can make it more efficient for something like that to happen. Yes. So, so if you have a complicated delegation rule, so there might be, a, I might delegate to Matula, I might delegate to someone else and someone else, someone else. And then eventually, so if I ask the system who has my vote now, and it says um, Fred from I don't know from Manchester, I could say, well, why does this person have my vote? But if all that data is stored on the blockchain, then I can see that the rules have been accurately followed. You can see the whole chain of uh, yeah. yeah. But if it was just a black box website that um, you don't you can't see the chain at all, you just have to trust that website that the the delegation chain yeah. is being correctly enforced. So, so people will not trust if they cannot see. And uh, you can say, okay, the technology is ready, so we can do this thing. But it's not only that. It's not enough. It needs the technology to be ready, and then when the society is also ready to mm. accept a new system. And uh, transparency and trust in general helps. 
for people to believe in something that it's complicated. It looks like the main value proposition of blockchain technology in general is that it helps build trust in low trust situations, right? It helps us interact better with people that we don't know very well and to make sure that they they perform what, what they promise. Mm-hmm. Now, trust is a really important issue in this day and age, uh, particularly when we're very vulnerable uh, to data exploitation. Given the latest scandal with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, can we actually use blockchain to build trust with companies that use our data? Um, yes, I think that's one of the use cases for blockchain in the future. So even though some blockchains, when you put data onto them, the knowledge is all public, there is this other architectures with blockchain. When you put your data on, you control the permissions on who can access that data. So you could say, Facebook, you can access this picture or you can access this message or whatever. You could still technically have the situation where face, when Facebook ha- has the right to look at your data that they could copy it all. So then you probably have to also have regulation and policy with the, the technology. But um, it is definitely technology feasible to retract permissions and give out permissions on your data, which is on the blockchain. So can we have a future social network that we log into just as we would log into Facebook? We have a user account and we have friends that we want to share information with. On the blockchain, can we basically make it secure such that our data that we share with friends is not capable of being accessed by a third party and that we can actually sell our data ourselves without having somebody else sell it for us? Yeah, I think this this definitely can it can happen, but it needs the maturity of the infrastructure around blockchain to be more developed. The scaling thing, for example, needs to be solved because we couldn't have something like Facebook where there's, I don't know, 3 billion users on the blockchain because that would just cause very big problems at the moment. But in the future, a few years, this, this is definitely possible. So would you need just a giant army of validators in a giant network like that, just looking at every piece of information that's been posted? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, you would need a lot of validators if you wanted it to be decentralized and not similar to Facebook. If there's just one validator, it'd be exactly the same as Facebook now. So, um, yeah, the use case of blockchain is totally decentralized, so you want as many people doing that as possible, but then maybe they're earning a reward by doing it. So all the money that is related to your data that Facebook might take now can be can be distributed throughout the network for these validators, but also maybe distributed to you because you would someone might have to pay you a bit of cryptocurrency to allow your data to be accessible. Mm. It's actually you are in control of your data and you sell your data to whoever you want. Yeah. So let's say I'm on my blockchain Facebook account and I am posting certain information and different companies out there want to access my preferences so they can sell me products. I can actually um, make it so that people are going to have to pay me in Bitcoin to access some of my data. How likely do you think this is going to happen in the future? So I'm very optimistic uh, about that. I can see in the future that a company would ask you to buy the right of um, seeing your post um, in Facebook, for example. Uh, However, what is happening at the moment 
um, um, services like Google and Facebook are totally free. However, what they take from the users, it's uh, extremely much more. So the trade-off at the moment, it's, it's a bit unfair. And uh, I see this uh, data protection of users, a very important use case of blockchain, because um, you can have actually control over what you want to sell. For example, there might be a specific period that you might be interested in, a, in a specific products and you can allow specific companies to see your data because you can have targeted uh, advertisements, uh, but you want that thing. Uh, and and then you can uh, you can take this right back to you. So, so I think it's 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 about power and control because at the moment Google and Facebook have so much data in all of us, probably a lot more than a lot of governments do. So they have a significant amount of power to influence people, such as the Cambridge Analytica when they target people to vote for Trump. But but now. Um, it, with a decentralized network, the power can start to come back to the individuals, which should be a good thing for society. Fantastic. That's all the time we have today. It's been a pleasure talking with you both. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. And to all of our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We'd like to give you an opportunity to engage with the topic further by sending your follow-up questions to Matula and Luke, who are happy to respond and carry on the conversation in a follow-up podcast on blockchain. If you'd like to ask them, ask them a question, you can tweet it to us, send us a message on Facebook, or email it to us at info at csgs.kcl.ac.uk. Our handle on Twitter is csgskcl. We look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast.